Well, I'd like to share some thoughts with you today related to the crucifixion, crucifixion of Christ. And uh, in some ways, it's a difficult subject. Uh, in many ways, really. And I was thinking of this song that, uh, well, sometimes they're called spirituals, that uh, black people wrote when they were in slavery here in the United States. And uh, it's a very simple song, but it's been running through my mind just because I've been studying this subject for this message. Were you there when they crucified the Lord? Were you there when they crucified the Lord? Sometimes it causes me to tremble, tremble, tremble. Were you there when they crucified the Lord? And I was thinking about that song. Sometimes, well, <laughs> sometimes it is hard for me to read the accounts of the crucifixion. Why is that? Other people can read that and not be affected. It's because God's opened your eyes as a Christian. He's given you a spiritual understanding and some clarity related to what really happened there on the cross. And the thought, were you there? Well, of course, physically you weren't there. You're here. Crucifixion was 2,000 years ago. But there's a sense in which you were there, and there's a sense in which God can make it that real to you as if you were there. There's a verse in Galatians where Paul says, this is Galatians chapter 3, verse 1, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now these Galatian people, these people from Galatia, didn't, were not at the crucifixion. But he says, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. He's talking about the preaching of the gospel, coming home to the heart and making it so real that you have this spiritual understanding, this mental picture, this portrait of what was going on there at the crucifixion. So... This is what we desire today, even as we look into God's Word. We have the record of the apostles that uh, told us of what took place there at the crucifixion. We're going to be looking at that today. Specifically, the subject is the seven sayings of Christ from the cross. The seven sayings of Christ from the cross. Well, many sermons have been preached on this subject, these seven sayings of Christ as he hung there on the cross. And I can say this the more I've thought about these statements, 
these seven statements, the more I see how amazing and wonderful these things that he said are. So I'll read them to you to begin with, and then we'll consider each one briefly. But let me just say, uh, as a preface, preface that we can't be absolutely sure about the order uh, in which these were given because we must combine the accounts of the various Gospels in order to come up with all the seven sayings. But the order that I'm giving here seems most likely it's the one that most commentators take for these seven sayings. Now these are short statements, short sentences, but they are loaded with important truth. So here here they are just uh, stated one after the other. So the first is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The second one was spoken to the thief on the cross. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The third, this was spoken to his mother Mary and also to their beloved uh, disciple, which certainly seems to be the Apostle John. He said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then to the beloved disciple, Behold your mother. The fourth, My God. My God. Why hast thou forsaken me? Number five, I thirst. Six, it is finished. And the last, number seven, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It seems that the first three were spoken before the darkness had descended upon the land. These were spoken in relationship to the needs of others spoken in relationship to the needs of others. Number four was spoken in the darkness, both in the land and in Christ's own soul. The last three were spoken very close to the time of his death. As I said, these are short sayings, short statements, and that was probably because it was extremely difficult to get a breath in order to speak. A crucified person had to push down on the nails in his feet in order to draw air into his lungs. What usually killed the person being crucified was exhaustion, loss of blood, and asphyxiation. They just couldn't breathe. But I want you to think of this. In his extreme agony there on the cross. The first three things that Christ speaks of have to do with the needs of others. This this is amazing. But even more amazing is the fact that the first thing that he deals with is the forgiveness of his persecutors. Think of that. 
He prays for them as he's there on the cross. There around him were some of these chief priests and scribes and elders who condemned him and ridiculed him. There were the soldiers there who mocked him and beat him and gambled for his clothing. There were the Jewish people who cried, crucify him, crucify him. And really at the beginning of the time, there were even the two men who were being crucified with him. The thieves initially were casting insults at him. But in the midst of his persecutors, of all these persecutors, Jesus prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Let's turn to Luke chapter 23. Luke 23, and we begin reading with verse 33. And when they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one at the right hand and at the, the other at the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. So, in the midst of these extreme circumstances, Jesus actually was exemplifying his own teaching. Remember how he prayed or taught us to pray, taught us to live there in the Sermon on the Mount? He said, But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to them who hate you. Pray for for them who despitefully use you and persecute you. Jesus always lived what he taught, and he was praying for those who were persecuting him. He was also fulfilling the messianic scripture back in Isaiah 53, 12, which says he interceded for the transgressors. There he was, interceding right there on the cross for the transgressors. Well, that was the first thing he said. Next, what Christ said, consider what he said to the repentant thief, one of the thieves that turned to Christ, even though they initially both had hurled insults at him. He said to that repentant thief, Today you will be with me in paradise. So if you're still there in um, Luke 23, let's just start down in verse uh, 39. And one of the criminals who was hanging there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, since 
you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly. That's an amazing thing he said right there. We indeed justly. For we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in, in your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Amazing. Somehow, by faith, this criminal recognized Christ, that Christ had a kingdom. When he looked the least like a king, probably any time in his life, he, re- he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And I think there are many lessons here, but I'll just mention three. The first is that salvation is by faith, totally apart from works. How do we see that? Well, there's no way this thief could do any works of righteousness. All he could do was cry out to Christ in the midst of his misery. And it's... it's, uh, Certainly true that Christ gave him much more than he even asked for. He asked that Christ would remember him at the time, some time in the future. Whenever you come into your kingdom, Jesus assuredly promised him, Truly, I say to you, today, just in a few hours, today, you will be with me in paradise. So here he was promising this this thief, a right relationship with him as the king of the whole universe. You shall be with me. You shall be with me. Another thing I think we can glean from this account of the thief is that salvation comes from revelation. This thief saw something of who Christ is that the other one did not. God opened his eyes while the others standing around were in darkness. Salvation is revelation. This thief had a revelation of Christ in the last moments of his life. And then the last lesson we can learn from this thief is that no one is too low and despised to be converted. The world was ready to throw this sinful person to the dogs. Christ was <laughs> Christ was ready to bring him into his kingdom. It's just tremendous grace and mercy. Even in the midst of his great agony, Jesus was focusing on the spiritual needs of others. We see that here. Well, let's turn to John chapter 19. We'll be skipping around the various gospel accounts to get these various statements of Christ. John chapter 19. 
and we'll read verse 26 and 27. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his own household. Apparently at this time, Mary's husband Joseph had died and Jesus was concerned about his mother's well-being. And I think this is both physical well-being and spiritual well-being, but primarily her spiritual well-being, her spiritual welfare. The reason I say that is because she had other children. Jesus had other siblings that could have been involved in Mary's life. But they were not believers at this point. And so Jesus wanted a believer to be taking care of his mom, one of his disciples. This we know, he, again, he was fulfilling the law, which says, honor your father and mother. He was concerned to fulfill even that aspect of the law there on the cross. He was honoring his mother, even as he suffered. After this, darkness fell over the land. Although it was midday, let's turn to Matthew twenty-seven, forty-five. Matthew 27 and 45 and 46. Now from the sixth hour, that's around noon, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour, so from noon till three. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, like I said at the beginning, sometimes there's things about this account that we just tremble at. And I really believe these words are so so sacred that you almost hesitate to touch them or try to expound on them or expand on them. What really happened there in the darkness is beyond our comprehension. But somehow, we know from other scriptures, somehow, he who knew no sin, that is Christ, became sin on our behalf. In this time of darkness, God in his holiness had to turn away from Jesus. The fellowship and unity that had existed between the Father and Son for all eternity was broken. And I want to read a quote, a fairly long quote here from Lorraine Bettner 
who wrote on this subject. He said, The penalty originally inflicted for sin was not merely the separation of the soul from the body, which is physical death, but the separation of the soul from God, which is spiritual death. That Jesus suffered this latter form of penalty as well as the former, is attested by this despairing cry. During those hours that Jesus hung on the cross as a sin offering for his people, that unique spiritual relationship which, has exist, which had existed during the entire period of his earthly life was completely withdrawn. Calvary presents a spectacle such as had never been seen before and can never be seen again. For Jesus did not suffer and die passively as one hopelessly submitting to the inevitable, but actively as one keeping a schedule or as one fulfilling a purpose. And I think this is a tremendous sentence here. He said, Had, he been ab- had we been able to look within his soul, the soul of Christ, we would have witnessed the most colossal struggle the universe had ever known. We could have seen what was going on deep down in the heart of Christ, soul of Christ. We would have witnessed the most colossal struggle the universe has ever known. He was upholding the pillars of the moral universe by rendering full satisfaction to divine justice. God's wrath against sin was being poured out upon his son in full measure. He was made a curse for us. He was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. And the Lord was laying on him the iniquity of us all. It wasn't his sin but ours that stood under the wrath of God. Our sins were the cause of all the Savior's suffering. Your sin, my sin, the cause of all of Christ's suffering. Two things here. Should this not make us hate sin with a great hatred and godly sorrow? I mean, this is one of the things that takes place when a person becomes a Christian they see it was my sin that put him there not somebody else's wasn't the, these people that had him crucified it was my sin which should make us hate sin with a great and godly sorrow and hatred But we should also think about this cry from the cross with thanksgiving. For although our sins put him there, our sins which were great and many, there has been a great atonement made. We should think about the cross in both those ways, with sorrow and and praise. And often with praise to God for sending his son to absorb the wrath that we deserved. John, John Newton put it this way. 
in one of his songs, he said, Thus, while his death my sin displays in all its blackest hue, such is the mystery of grace, it seals my pardon too. I mean, these words, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, should remind us of both of those areas, our sin and our great Savior. You know, this is why God instituted that, the communion time that we have. We do this, do this as a reminder of what he did for us. Do this as a reminder of what I did for you. I think it's important to note that at this time, in this cry, Jesus does not call God Father. Now he's actually quoting Psalm 22, verse 1. He says, my God, my God. He doesn't say my Father. He says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Let's turn back to that. Psalm 22. There in the first verse. You know, it says, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Of course, he's quoting this psalm. But there's other things in this psalm that actually point forward to what the next thing we're going to, the next thing that he says. So let's just read on here in the psalm a little bit. It's just a picture of what was going on. He says, But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with, with the lip. They wag the head saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. And let's uh, skip down to verse 14. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And thou dost lay me in the dust of death. Well, maybe we could just read on just a little bit more. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers have encompassed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look. They stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothes they cast lots. So just a tremendous prophecy hundreds of years before the time of the crucifixion of what would take place when Christ was there on the cross. But the reason I read the section just to say that it points forward to the next thing that Jesus says is there in verse 15 
where it says, my tongue cleaves to my jaws. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. So let's turn back to John now, John chapter 19. And we'll read verse 28 and 30, 28 through 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished in order that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. When Jesus therefore had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And they and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So this next utterance of Christ I am thirsty, or I thirst, I think the King James says. Now this is in fulfillment of what is written in Psalm sixty nine twenty one. They also gave me gall for my food, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. <clears throat> gall was a sedative used to deaden pain, and it was offered to Christ just before his crucifixion. If you want to see that, you can look to at Matthew twenty seven thirty four. We won't look it up right now, but it was offered to Christ right before he was, was crucified. But Christ refused it. He was willing to experience the physical pain in its fullness. He was not going to take any sedative. Willing to experience the physical pain in its fullness in order that he might be able to consciously and completely accomplish what he came to die for. In other words, he didn't want to be sedated. He didn't want to be, his mind not be clear. So he, he refused that gall. Then just before his death, they offered him vinegar, or the New American Standard says uh, sour wine. The scriptures say, say that he received this. He received this. Possibly he needed it even to get these last statements out because of being so thirsty from the crucifixion. But we know this, it was in order to fulfill the scriptures. We're told that. And I just want you to think about this. The one who invited thirsty souls to come to him and drink was so thirsty it, that it says his tongue stuck to his jaws. Why did he do that? Why was he in that situation? Why this terrible thirst? So that he could offer you and I the water of life. He had to die like this in order that we might have living water. So after he had received this sour wine, he makes this 
triumphant statement. It is finished. We just read that. It is finished. He didn't say, I'm finished. He said, it is finished. What's he talking about? He knew that the work that he came to do was done. What God had sent him to earth for, he had completed. The work of of atonement was taken care of. Back in Matthew, related to this same part of the time on the cross, it says that he cried with a cried this with a loud voice. See, this is a victorious proclamation. It is finished. It's these are perhaps the three greatest words ever uttered. Now in Jesus' day, this little phrase, it is finished, was actually a legal term. It meant the debt was paid in full. So think of that in terms of what we know was really going on there. Our sin debt has been paid in full. As one writer said, His sacrifice for sins was complete, perfect, once for all, eternal, finished, and done forever. Paid in full. It is finished. Who can require anything else to be done when the Son of God says, It's complete. It's finished. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? You know, it's been paid. There's no charge left to pay. If detailed arguments concerning the atonement and the way of salvation are difficult to follow, just remember these three words. It is finished. As the songwriter said, lifted up was he to die, it is finished was his cry, now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Well, this brings us to the seventh and last saying of Christ from the cross, found in Luke 23, 46. Let's just turn to that section. Luke 23. We'll begin reading at verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, the sun being obscured, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. 
And Jesus crying out with a loud voice. Again, he's crying this out with a loud voice. Father, into your hands, into thy hands, I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. See, at this point, the victory's been won. Fellowship with his Father is restored, and he can yield up his spirit into his Father's hands. Again, he's quoting a phrase from the Old Testament. This is in Psalm 31.5. Into thy hand I commit my spirit. So many, so many things being fulfilled here on the, on the cross. Ultimately, no one took his life from him. He yielded it up to his father. Remember he said, I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it up again. Speaking of his life, no one takes his life from me, from him. So I think it is significant that he began his first utterance from the cross referring to God as his father. When he said, Father, forgive them. And now his last words from the cross, he again calls God his Father. The dark night of his soul was over and the light of God's face was now shining upon him again. Having accomplished the work which the Father gave him to do, he soon would be seated at the right hand of God in glory, in that glory which he shared with him before the foundation of the world. The prophecies were fulfilled, redemption was accomplished, the kingdom of God was established. By his life, death, and resurrection, Christ gave birth to a whole new world, a whole new creation. Through life, through his, he, he brought life through his death, or to say it another way, through death came life. He paid the highest possible price to give us the greatest possible gift. Surely we can say, Hallelujah, what a Savior. <clears throat> so let me close by just reading these amazing words from the cross to you again. These seven sayings. <clears throat> Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then to the thief, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And to his mother and John, woman, behold your son. And to John, behold your mother. Then this time in the darkness, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And these two words, I thirst. The three tremendous words, it is finished. 
and then lastly, Father, into thy, into your hands, I commit my spirit. As we think of these seven short sentences, surely we can say, as was said in another context, never did a man speak the way this man speaks. Never. Never see anything like this. Just this time of what he said there on the cross, there's nothing like this in all the literature of the world and all the events of the world. Nothing like what we just looked at. So I hope this brief message will motivate us to take some time to meditate on these profound sayings of Christ from the cross. So let's sing a little bit. Why don't we start with uh, Hallelujah, what a Savior. Man of sorrows, what a name. 